At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. For many years, many have asked the question, what if God was one of us? Through the incarnation of Jesus, God answered that question, and Jesus became one of us. Every year for centuries, Christians have celebrated the miracle of Jesus' birth. This Christmas season, we're diving into a new series, Emmanuel, God with us. Learning how the arrival of Jesus Christ changes everything. He came to save us, a broken and crooked world of fallen people. Join us this Christmas as we explore the miracle of Jesus' incarnation and the impact it still has on us. Open your Bible with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one below the seat in front of you, or if you're joining us online, hopefully you have one nearby. We're going to be in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8 this morning, and so I'm going to read that passage and pray for us, and then we'll explore it together. So the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, we engage this text, which you've inspired and so um, amazingly recounts to us the humility and reality of your son, Jesus. I pray that as we prepare to step in, that you would come now and by your spirit, allow the majesty and glory of who you are to weigh upon our hearts. God, part of the amazingness of this passage is in the recognition of who you are and all your glory. And so would your spirit prepare us even now by just bringing that to bear, by sobering us, by recognizing, helping us to recognize who you really are. And as we study, would you work to illuminate our hearts and our minds to see the glory of Jesus even more greater than how we walked in, that we might follow him and trust in him more deeply. So we invite your spirit to do his work now among us for the sake of our lives, for the sake of our community, but ultimately for the sake of your glory. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things I love about the, uh, this time of year is I genuinely do love kind of the spirit of Christmas, right? Even though there's, Christmas has become this like hustle bustle consumeristic craziness that exists in our culture, there's still underneath that exists this kind of 
desire that we have for the spirit of Christmas. And I think one of the things that we sense in the spirit of Christmas is this desire for harmony and unity and togetherness. It seems like every Christmas music or uh, Christmas movie tries to capture that, whether it's like the who's down in Hill, Whoville gathered around the tree or whether it's people gathering to sp- spread Christmas cheer and elf by singing loud for all to hear or whatever romantic Hallmark movie that you watched that ended in family re- reconciliation and tears this week. It, it, it always seems like there's this kind of spirit of togetherness and desire and unity that we all long for. But I think one of the problems that often comes with that spirit of Christmas is that it never seems to truly last or even ever be fully realized. It's like a longing and ideal that we all feel And yet, oftentimes, when December 26th comes, it feels like that spirit's gone rather quickly. And I think there's kind of this ache around Christmas and this desire for unity and harmony, but it feels fleeting and temporary. I think one of the Christmas songs that often captures that sentiment for me or some of the tension and longing we feel is John Lennon's song, Happy Christmas which I'm sure you've heard a bajillion times throughout this season on One Sense. It's an interesting song because on one hand, it's a celebration wishing happy Christmas, but on the other hand, it's a little bit of a protest and a little bit of a aching for the world to be made right. Right, Lennon bellows in the chorus, this is Christmas for weak and for strong, for rich and the poor ones, the road is so long. And so happy Christmas for black and for white, for yellow and red ones. Let's all stop the fight. And as he sings that, kind of hauntingly behind it is this chorus of children singing, war is over if you want it. War is over now. And it's this odd song that celebrates the spirit of what we desire, yet recognizes, is it going to happen? Is it not? We have the choice. Can we step in? Will there be peace? Will there be harmony? Will there be unity? And yet oftentimes those things can feel fleeting. And we wonder, is there an actual way to live in unity and harmony together? And if so, how do we experience that? And not only experience that, how do we help carry that into our lives and community, not just for 25 days out of the year, but for all year around, where there's this sort of flourishing and unity together? Well, the good news is I think there is an answer for that, and it's found in the story of Christmas. We've been in this series this December that we've called Emmanuel, God with us, where we've been looking at passages in the New Testament They kind of focus in around Jesus's incarnation. That's a big word that just means in the flesh. But one of the things that we celebrate at Christmas is the truth that God put on flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus is God who has become man. An incredible mystery, profound, and which shapes and changes our entire world and lives. And we've seen how through the incarnation, God invites us to experience him in some incredible ways. The first week we saw how through Jesus' incarnation, God invites us to see his glory uniquely in Jesus. Last week, our brother Brandon did an incredible job helping us see how in Jesus, God invites us to hear his ultimate word, the revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to continue that study 
and be invited to follow the path of the incarnation in such a way that I think it actually speaks to the longings of our heart for unity and harmony and flourishing. So let me invite you to the book of Philippians. Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church he planted in the city of Philippi, which was a Roman city that is now in modern Greece. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi to thank them because they had sent a gift to him while he was in prison. And so he wrote back to give thanks and praise for their partnership in the gospel and also to help encourage them. And as he does, he deals with a couple things that are going on in their church. And one of the things he deals with is their commitment to unity together, to being the sort of harmony, harmonious community that's committed to one another. And in chapter 2, he deals with that. Look at it with me. I'll pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here, Paul's desire, right? He's drawing on the reality of the gospel. You can hear it. If there's, if there's anything in Christ, anything in your love, anything in this, if, if there's anything among you, complete my joy. How? By being united in mind and love and harmony and perspective. It was Paul's desire for this church to experience that unity and flourishing that we all long for, that there was a sense of togetherness among them. But how do we actually pursue that? How do we complete? How did that church complete Paul's joy? How do we complete that joy to experience that togetherness? Well, Paul goes on to give them a series of calls to invite them to consider what that path looks like for them to experience that harmony and togetherness. And really in the the verses that follow, I think he invites us to three things to consider in how we can pursue harmony and unity together. The first thing he invites them to is to consider their position. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry, or some of your translations might say selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul begins, as he calls them towards this vision of unity and harmony, he begins by inviting them to consider how they position themselves within the reality of their community. He says, don't do anything out of self-interest or out of conceit. That, that word really means an empty glorying, an excessive pride in your own worth or value. He puts those two words together to make a point. One commentator says this, that these two words speak to a competitive one-upmanship that would directly inhibit the unity and communal mindset that Paul is commending. Paul's speaking directly against the culture that surrounds him. In Roman culture, in the culture that this letter was written to, they prize social status. They would often boast about themselves, inflate their own ego, make themselves feel more important, position themselves ahead of others. We know nothing of that in American culture today, do we? And Paul says, don't be that. Don't don't position yourself that way. Don't be the person that's always seeking to one-up the others around you. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone like that? You tell a story, they have to tell a better story. You say something, they have to critique and clarify. You know they know better. Paul says, don't be that person. 
Don't approach life that way. Don't approach engagement and relationship and community, positioning yourself ahead of others, boasting in your own worth or value. Instead, he says, with humility, count others more important than you. Position yourself below them. Consider them more significant, more important, higher on the social food chain of life. That's how you should think of those around you. And for Paul, what he directs us towards is really the essence of what humility is. I think one of the best definitions of humility, which comes from Tim Keller, who borrows from C.S. Lewis, who borrows from the Bible, is that humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. That's Paul's idea. The first place, how should you position yourself in order to experience unity and harmony? Well, the first place is stop thinking about yourself. Start to think about others around you. Consider them more significant. How do we count others more significant? Well, he gives us that idea in verse 4. By looking not to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Don't be self-consumed. Don't be self-focused. Think about the interests around you. Think about the people around you. Consider them. It's as you do that that you can begin to experience harmony and flourishing in life. But I think we often struggle with that as a culture. I think, I think we struggle even increasingly more and more with actually considering and thinking about others around us. I, I was reminded of that just this week in an odd way. My uh, wife and my youngest son and I got the opportunity to go see Frozen, uh, the musical down at the Detroit Opera House this week, which was awesome. And it was a spectacular, and the stage and production was, uh, was absolutely amazing. And as we were sitting there enjoying the show, uh, there was a moment where one of the lead male vocalists was singing a solo, and the intro to the song was very quiet. It was just him and a piano and kind of his vocals. So the room was quiet, and he was singing, and it was, it was beautiful. And all of a sudden, I hear, not close by, but fairly far away, someone go for a snack in their bag of chips. <laughs> so you hear this crinkle. Okay, it happens. And I'm not trying to exaggerate here. I can be prone to that. But, but all of a sudden, it's like they're digging for the last chip in the bag for like a good 30 to 60 seconds. Like distractingly, like enough where you're like, just get to the chip already. I want to hear the guy singing, right? Like it was like one of those moments. I was like, oh my goodness. It was like, are you, do you recognize where we're at? Like what is happening right now? Can you at least wait till the part where the song gets loud? A few minutes later goes by and there's a lady sitting a couple rows down for us who obviously loved Frozen. And throughout the course of the night, she proceeded to sing along with almost every song. And in my heart, I wanted to say, I, we didn't pay to listen to your mediocre performance of Frozen. Like, I'm here, and my, I told my wife this, and she's like, you're just turning into a grumpy old man. I'm like, maybe, but growing up, there was a sense of theater etiquette. There was a sense of, I'm here, and I'm going to consider that I'm in a group of people, and I'm not the center of attention. But that seems to be lost. And it's not just lost in theater, it's lost online. It's lost in 
the way we operate at the grocery store or drive our cars or do things. We've become a culture that's so isolated and self-focused. We never consider others. We only consider ourselves. And what was interesting is I'm sitting watching a show in the theater that I think of all the Disney movies gives the best example of love. Now, Disney has its problems and their movies have their problems, but Frozen at least tries to get to the heart of, the heart of love is self-sacrifice. An act of love that thaws a frozen heart is the self-sacrifice of one sister for another. Not romance, not Prince Charming, it's the willingness to sacrifice. And it was so ironic to me in that moment. Here's such a great example in theater, and here's such a living example of how far we are from it. And then we wonder why we struggle as a culture for unity and harmony because all we can think about is ourselves and all we do from everything that fills our mind is self-focus and reinforces we're the center of attention. But what Paul says is if we're actually to be a community of harmony, we have to go the opposite direction. Don't consider yourself. Consider others. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interest of others. If we're looking out for ourselves then inevitably when my interests clash with your interest, unity will be broken. But if we're looking out for each other and my interests clash with your interests, then unity can be built because we'll serve one another. And so what Paul is encouraging them is to say, hey, complete this joy by pursuing and considering how you position yourself in community. Actively fight against ambition and pride in your life. Actively fight against it. We're all prone to it. I'm prone toward it. We're all prone toward self-centeredness. You have to practice and fight from where you line up in the grocery store to how you drive to the way you operate. The more we practice in humility, positioning ourselves and considering others' interests, that's how we actually move towards unity. So ask yourself this question this week. How can I serve someone without any recognition? How can you serve someone this week without any, no one notices, it's not for yourself, it's not for, just in order to benefit them. Now you might be thinking at that point, okay, I recognize that humility means putting the interests of others, but that seems really hard, and it is. So, so how do we actually begin to shift to operate that way in our life? Well, Paul knows we need a mindset shift, right? We're prone towards selfishness, so we need to shift our mind. And in verse 5, that's what he invites us to. Look what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When Paul says, have this mind, he means give careful consideration or have this opinion. Think about it this way. And he's saying that, have that among yourselves, right? This is how you are to think of it as a community. This should be your communal mindset to have this mentality. Every good Sports team should have a unified mentality. I always love if you watch the show Friday Night Lights, they always have the slogan, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose, right? That's the team mentality. Paul's like, here's your team mentality. Jesus, that's your team mentality, right? That's what he says. Have this mind that's just yours in Christ Jesus. Now, that's an interesting phrase because in the original language, it doesn't have a verb. It's just have this mind in Christ Jesus. Like, well, what, do you, what does that mean exactly? And scholars have wrestled back and forth. Is Paul saying that we already have this mind in Jesus? Or are we supposed to pursue, like, do something or make this mind a reality? Is this just true of us? Or are we to make this true? 
I actually think it's both. I think that's the genius of Paul's writing. That he wants to remind us that part of the reason we have this mind is because this is true of us. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you've been given God's spirit, and his humility has now become your humility. You have this in you, but you're to grow or to work to have that manifest itself in your life. So it's a both and, not an either or. Why? Because Paul wants to remind us that our humility is not ultimately rooted in us. It's not rooted in our achievement or our perfection. If that's the case, we'd never experience humility. But he also wants to remind us that we have a role to play to see humility lived out and experienced in our lives and community. It's like the same thing he says later in Philippians where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God's work in you. Wait, so is my salvation God's work or my work? Well, it's God's work, but you have a role in it to experience that lived out in your life. And so I think that's what Paul's trying to say. Hey, you have humility in Jesus. Now embrace that and seek that to be made manifest in how you live. But how do you do that? By focusing on Jesus. That's the point. Where's the mindset shift? What's the team mentality? It's Jesus. He becomes the focus. That's how we move towards humility and embrace what he said in verses three and four. I love the story of the, uh, one of my favorite preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a doctor for many years and then shifted to become a preacher. And he, he preached in, in central London for many years. Um, and he, he's one of my favorite preachers. When, when I went, I went to England a couple years ago and I got to see his church, which I don't think my wife was that excited to buy as I'm like dragging her down these back alleys of London. She's like, let's see the beautiful sights. I'm like, no, let's go find this obscure church. that's in the middle of, you know, the city, but it was awesome. I was so excited because I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, but he recounts one time when someone, a man approached him, um, to, in pursuit of the, the kind of attribute of humility. And he wrote this a man came to him and said, how can I be humble? He felt there was a pride in him, and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, that, and the other, and you will be humble. I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. You see, we're so prone to pride that even our spiritual activity we can take pride in. And so you can think, oh, how do I become humble if I just prayed more, did more, read my Bible, showed up at church, served, do this? No, 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 no. At the end of the day, humility isn't about you. It's about Jesus and then others. And the way that we pursue humility and have our mindset changed is by giving our attention to him and our focus on him. So to pursue humility is to set our mind on Christ. And that's what Paul does in the next verses. Because even as we consider your mindset, the last thing he wants you to consider is the example of Jesus. Look at what he says, starting in verse 5 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So as Paul invites our minds to focus on Christ, he now takes us into the heart of the incarnation, of what it means that Jesus came in order to help us consider Jesus' own humility and encouragement of our pursuit of humility. And so he highlights three aspects to Jesus' humility. And I'll give you a fair warning, it gets deep, but it's important for how we pursue humility ourselves. The first reality of Jesus that he discusses in relationship to his humility is his eternal reality. He looks at Jesus prior to his incarnation, prior to his arrival at Bethlehem in that manger so many years ago. And he says, look, there was humility there already. He highlights it by saying, who, Jesus, was in the form of God. Now, when Paul says that, He's highlighting both Jesus' divinity, but he's highlighting a unique aspect of his divinity. The word that he uses there for form is the Greek word morphe. And it focuses, that word focuses on the outward appearance. In Roman culture, someone's morphe, their form or outward appearance, actually was connected with their social status. And Jesus, or I'm sorry, Paul wants you to see that Jesus had the morphe, the outward social status and reality of God, because he was God. Now, what is God's outward appearance? Well, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. The going public of God's holiness is his glory, right? It's the display of who he is in his glory. And so what Paul is trying to get you to see is that Jesus was God, and as God, existed for all of eternity prior to his incarnation with the glory, majesty, and splendor as the eternal divine son. He was God, and he carried God's glory. One translation of this that I love says that he who was robed in divine glory. That, that's the emphasis. You're going to see why Paul wants to emphasize that reality in a second. But he wants you to see, when you talk about Jesus, you're talking about the eternal Son of God who has existed for all eternity in majesty and glory and splendor. But note the next phrase, who did not account equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, or some translations say used for his own advantage. So although Jesus existed as God with all the glory and status and reality of God, he did not use that status as a way to promote himself, to advance himself. And what Paul is referencing here is the reality that Jesus' humility actually began prior to his incarnation and his willingness to submit himself in the plan of God to be the one who would come to offer himself for the salvation of humanity. If you read through Scripture, you know that it seems that God, it does seems, it, sorry, if you read through Scripture, you will find that it often references that God planned his work of salvation prior to any act of his creation. Theologians reference this as the covenant of redemption. That God, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned prior to any act of creation, before the foundations of the earth, 
to enact a plan of salvation in which the Son would offer up his life for the sake of fallen and sinful humanity. This is why your name could be written in the Lamb's book of life prior to the foundations of the earth. This is why Jesus would say, I don't, no one takes my life from me. I offer it willingly. See, prior to any act of God's creation, the Son, the eternal Son, had already embraced humility by being the one who would be willing to enact the plan of God for our salvation. And Paul highlights that. He didn't seek his own advantage. That's in his nature. So he focuses you on his eternal reality. The second thing, though, he focuses you then on is his incarnation. Look at verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. That word, he made himself nothing. Some translations might say he emptied himself. The idea is that he divested himself of his status, that he let go of his eternal glory in the act of his incarnation. By becoming a human, he let go of that glory, right? That's Paul's point here. He made himself nothing. How did he make himself nothing? By taking the form of a servant. Many people have discussed this verse and said, well, Jesus gave up being God. That's not true. The way he made himself nothing or emptied himself, it was not an emptying by subtraction. It was an emptying by addition. By taking on human form. By adding humanity as part of who he is, right? So he's fully God and fully man. He willingly laid down his eternal pre-existent glory, right? I told you this would get deep, but it's important. He laid that down for us. He divested himself. That's why we refer often to the incarnation as a condescension, a coming down. A willingness of Jesus to let go of his eternal place in glory with the Father and the Son to become a human being. Jesus' suffering did not begin on the cross. It began the moment he was conceived in Mary's womb. That he would become a human being was a giving up of his eternal preexistent glory. C.S. Lewis, I think, says this great. If you want to capture for a moment what that means, he says, the eternal being in his book, Mere Christianity, the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think of how you would like to become a slug or a crab. Think how you would like to take that form, that reality, to add that as part of who you are, to live as a slug. That's the reality, just a hint of the reality, what it means that the eternal Son of God would become a human being. That he would be fully human. And so Paul wants you to see, don't just see his humility, not only in his eternal past, see the act of humility in his condescension and incarnation, but finally see it ultimately in his death. Look what he says in verse 8. And being found in human form, here's the next thing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
That word he humbled himself is really the idea of humiliation. He humiliated himself. How was he humiliated? So it wasn't enough that he just came as a human. He humiliated himself even further. How? By being obedient to death. There was a greater humiliation beyond his incarnation, and it was his willingness to die, to be subject to the forces of death itself. Death is the enemy of God's creation. It is what stands opposed to God's desire. It's the consequence for sin. It is a tool wielded by God's spiritual enemy, Satan. And the reality of Jesus is that he came to die to willingly succumb to death. And you and I both know there is nothing more humiliating than losing to your enemy. Every Ohio State fan knows that intimately right now. (laughs) But it's the truth that Jesus would succumb to his rival, to the thing that stood opposed to him, that he would give in to that and let it have power over him to die on that cross How humiliating for the Son of God to embrace that in obedience. And not only that, he goes on to make the note, it wasn't just the fact that he died, it was even the way he died. For there's nothing more humiliating than the death on a cross. The cross was the most humiliating way to die in Roman culture, and I would argue in any culture. To be stripped naked, beaten, hung on a post, on a public highway where you had to fight for every breath. The way you die on a cross is ultimately by suffocation. So you're painfully nailed, lifting yourself up to try to catch your breath and then hanging there in agony while you're mocked, ridiculed, spit at. That the Son of God, the one who deserved eternal glory and all majesty and all honor would not only come and become a human being and would not only die and succumb to the enemy of God, but would do that in the most heinous way possible. What could be more humiliating? And yet that is what he endured. Why? For us. For our salvation. To deal with our sin. He wasn't considering himself. He was considering you and me. He wasn't just considering his status. He was considering our reconciliation back to God for our sin. He laid down his life for us. He endured the ultimate humility so that you and I could be redeemed. So that those who would put their faith in him as Messiah, in his death for sins, in his resurrection, could be restored in relationship with God the Father. Could begin to experience flourishing in their relationships with others. And one day experience the kingdom of God in all the earth in his return. This is what he came for. And he willingly subjected himself for our salvation. And Paul says, look, look at what he did. Because when you look at what Jesus did, you cannot help but be humble. D.A. Carson is one of the best New Testament scholars in the last 50 years. He he taught for many, many years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he recounts in one of his commentaries on Philippians when he got a chance to actually interview two substantial theologians Uh, that were really prominent in the middle part of the 20th century. And he sat down, and in his interview, they were discussing a lot of the things that these men had done. One of them had started a seminary. They'd written for Christianity Today. They had massive impacts on students, written commentaries, books, all these sorts of things. And 
Carson recounts that in that interview, at one point, he asked them how they stayed humble despite all their accomplishments. And he writes this. He says, one of them, in a kind of gentle outrage to his question, responded by asking, how on earth can anyone be arrogant when standing beside the cross? If you really look and ponder what the message of the gospel is, that Jesus, the Son of God, came as a human being and died for sins, if God would do that for us, how could we not humble ourselves towards those around us? And so all through this, what Paul wants you to see is, listen, if you want to experience flourishing and unity and harmony in your community, then follow Jesus's humble example. Now, he'll go on to say, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus even has a greater glory now on the other side of the resurrection. Don't miss that. But what Paul wants you to see in this is to say, but if you want to experience the sort of unity and flourishing, you have to follow his example of humility. That that glory came through his willingness to sacrifice. And for us to experience the flourishing that God has for us, it's a similar path. It's the path of humility that leads to the unity and harmony that we desire. So he's saying, follow, look at Jesus, see what he did, let it change your mind, and then follow his example. You say, how do I follow Jesus's example? Two things I would encourage you to consider this morning in following Jesus's example. One, be a servant in your life. His humility begins, begins with his willingness to take the form of a servant. And your and I's humility begins there as well. When we seek to step into the places of our lives, into the communities or families or jobs, wherever God calls us, and we come in with the mentality that says, how do I serve here? How do I lift others up here? How do I not think about myself, but how I can make these people better and this place better? When we have that mentality, I mean, that's where unity and flourishing starts to come. The second thing is be obedient. His humiliation comes in his willingness to be obedient, even to death on a cross. And I think one of the most humble things that you can do is simply be obedient to Jesus. You see, the world wants to tell us, define yourself, follow your own heart, do what you want, define your own morality. It's the humble person that says, no, 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 no. I'm not God. He is. And what he says, I'll do. The most arrogant thing we can do and the root of all sin is our pride when we think we know better. And if our Savior was willing to be obedient to the point of death, then certainly we can follow his example and be obedient even when it might cost us something. Obedience is a quiet protest that says to the world, I won't follow your ways. I follow Jesus. He's my king. 
So I encourage you, if you're struggling in an area of disobedience, turn, repent. God has grace for you and forgiveness. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus was humiliated to cover your sin. You don't have to continue that. Turn, follow, receive his grace and mercy and seek to walk in obedience to him. Man, if we, if we just did those two simple things, and I'm not saying they're easy. Don't hear that. That's why we got to keep our mind focused on Jesus. See his example and the incredible thing that he did for us. But if we were just, if we came in seeking to be obedient to Jesus and serving other people, can you imagine what sort of community we could be? Do you imagine the impact that would have in our world? The impact you might have for the sake of the kingdom of God? It's not, the the plan is not complicated. It's not easy because of our sin, but it's not complicated. If we just follow Jesus' example of obedience and service, we'll begin to see unity and flourishing. See, that's the spirit of Christmas. It's not some magic esoteric, oh, let's have a nice family moment and then we'll all be good. No, the spirit of Christmas is a savior who is willing to humiliate himself so that we could be lifted up. And when we follow that spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that's where flourishing comes. We feel that longing in our hearts. Let's follow his example. And let's see that realized among us. Would you pray for with me? Jesus, just for a moment, we stop even in response to what your word says to just be amazed. We're amazed at who you are the eternal son of God, the one who has existed outside of time, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, the one by whom everything was made that has been made. How amazing are you, Jesus, in your nature and your character. We bless your name this morning, son of God. And yet how incredible is what you have done for us that you would condescend as a man, that you would give up your heavenly home to come to a manger in some backwoods stable among some animals and then live a life in perfect obedience, but ultimately to die for us. Man, we just for a moment say thank you. Thank you for what you have done. I pray you would continue to fill our minds with the truth of what you've done in the gospel. That you would help us to fix our eyes on you even this morning. And that from that place, that would transform our minds. Don't let us be conformed to the image of the world, but let us be transformed. Let our minds be renewed in the truth of what you've done and who you are. And then let that flourish, or let that be lived out in our lives where we might flourish, experience the unity and harmony that you desire. 
So I pray now, even as we prepare to just respond in this song and celebrate the truth that you are Emmanuel, God with us, as we rehearse your story, would you use this as an opportunity to just stir our affections, to focus our intentions, to just help us for a few minutes catch that weight and reality of what it means that you came, put on flesh, and died for us so that we can follow and continue to serve. To do that work now, we always sing, Lord, we invite you to. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.